All right, this is a special episode of Wiley Reads, subtitled Wiley Listens, because technically Wiley is on spring break as of 3.25 this afternoon, Thursday, uh, early March, and he does not have any homework. However, this is the situation. Mommy is like on the edge of her seat about this Tom Sawyer book and what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I I just can't stand to let it go for a week of not knowing. So, Mommy has offered to read while Wiley listens. And this is acceptable to Wiley. <laughs> so he gets to... Okay, but he's not allowed to play on his electronics. Yes, I just get... I, I can just... We, yeah, you you can rest your eyes, you can do whatever, you can just relax, but you're not allowed to play on electronics. You have to listen. Am I allowed to sleep? No, you can't go to sleep. How can you sleep at a time like this? It's just someone was murdered. I mean, it's so it's so intense. And you have hot dogs right here uh, by my book. Yes, right. Oh yes. So you you got you got a snack. I'll just. I'll just eat so many hot dogs that my that my brain thinks that, that my brain eats hot dogs in my dreams until okay. the point where I sleepwalk and eat hot dogs. So here's another thing. We're about to get on a cruise ship uh, in two days. And so I don't know how we're going to handle this, whether Mommy's going to read and Wiley's going to listen. But Wiley suggested changing the name of the podcast temporarily to from Wiley Reads to Wiley Listens. <laughs> uh, anyway, we want to keep going with the thing, but I, I, I might be reading for a few days. Um, and we, we might cover a little bit of, a little bit more ground than usual. Anyway, here we go. We are on chapter 11. I'm just going to move something all, all of a sudden. In which Tom Sawyer declares bankruptcy. That joke never gets old. <laughs> He doesn't actually declare bankruptcy. I just think that that's funny. Okay. So, here we go. Picking up uh, roughly where we left off. Chapter 11. Then Huckleberry and Tom stood dumb and staring and heard the stony-hearted liar reel off his serene statement. They... They, expecting every moment that the clear sky would deliver God's lightnings upon his head, and wondering to see how long the stroke was delayed. And when he had finished and stood still alive and whole, their wavering impulse to break their oath and save the poor betrayed prisoner's life faded and vanished away. For plainly this miscreant had sold himself to Satan, and it would be fatal to meddle with the property of such a power as that. Why didn't you leave? What did you want to come here for? Somebody said. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it, Potter moaned. I wanted to run away, but I I, I couldn't seem to come anywhere but here. And he fell to sobbing again. Injun Joe repeated his statement just as calmly. A few minutes afterwards, on the inquest, under oath, and the boys, seeing that the lightnings were still withheld, were confirmed in their belief that Joe had sold himself to the devil. 
He was now become to them the most balefully interesting object they had ever looked upon, and they could not take their fascinated eyes from his face. They inwardly, inwardly resolved to watch him nights when opportunity should offer in the hope of getting a glimpse of his dread master. Injun Joe helped to raise the body of the murdered man and put it in a wagon for removal, and it was whispered through the shuddering crowd that the wound bled a little. Oof. The boys thought that this happy circumstance would turn suspicious suspicion in the right direction, but they were disappointed, for more than one villager remarked, It was within three feet of Muff Potter when it done it. Tom's fearful secret and gnawing conscience disturbed his sleep for as much as a week after this, and at breakfast one morning, Sid said, Tom, you pitch around and talk in your sleep so much that you keep me awake half the time. Tom blanched and dropped his eyes. It's a bad sign, said Aunt Polly gravely. What you got on your mind, Tom? Nothing, nothing I know of. But the boy's hand shook so that he spilled his coffee. Wiley, you're supposed to be listening and eating your hot dogs. <laughs> All right. And you do talk such stuff, Sid, Sid said. Last night you said, it's blood, it's blood. That's what it is. You said that over and over. And you said, don't torment me so. I'll tell. Tell what? What is it you'll tell? Everything was swimming before Tom. There is no telling what might have happened now. But luckily, the concern passed out of Aunt Polly's face, and she came to Tom's relief without knowing it. She said, Show. It's that dreadful murder. I dream about it almost every night myself. Sometimes I dream it's me that done it. Mary said she had been affected much the same way. Sid seemed satisfied. Tom got out of the presence as quick as he plausibly could, and after that he complained of a toothache for a week and tied up his jaws every night. He never knew that Sid lay nightly watching and frequently slipping the bandage free and then leaned on his elbow and listened a good while at a time and afterward slipped the bandage back to its place again. Tom's distress of mind wore off gradually, and the toothache grew irksome and was discarded. If Sid really managed to make anything out of Tom's disjointed mutterings, he kept it to himself. It seemed to Tom that his schoolmates never would get done holding inquests on dead cats, and thus keeping his trouble present to his mind. Sid noticed that Tom never was coroner at one of these inquiries, though it had been his habit to take the lead in all new enterprises, he noticed, too, that Tom had never acted as a witness, and that was strange, as Sid did not overlook the fact that Tom even showed a marked aversion to these inquests and always avoided them when he could. Sid marveled, but said nothing. However, even inquests went out of vogue at last and ceased to torture Tom's conscience. Every day or two, during this time of sorrow, Tom watched his opportunity and went to the little 
grated jail window and smuggled such small comforts through to the quote-unquote murderer as he could get hold of. The jail was a trifling little brick den that stood in a marsh at the edge of the village and no guards were afforded for it. Indeed, it was seldom occupied. These offerings greatly helped to ease Tom's conscience. The villagers had a strong desire to tar and feather Injun Joe and ride him on a rail for body snatching, but so formidable was his character that nobody could be found who was willing to take the lead in the matter, so it was dropped. He had been careful to begin both of his inquest statements with the fight without confessing the grave robbery that preceded it. Therefore, it was deemed wisest not to try the case in the courts at present. All right, we're on chapter 12, in which Tom does not declare bankruptcy. But instead, he declares that he is a millionaire. Oh, he's a millionaire now. Okay. Chapter 12. One of the reasons why Tom's mind had drifted away from its secret troubles was that it had found a new and weighty matter to interest itself about. Becky Thatcher had stopped coming to school. Tom had struggled with his pride a few days and tried to whistle her down the wind, but failed. He began to find himself hanging around her father's house nights and feeling very miserable. She was ill. What if she should die? There was distraction in the thought. He no longer took an interest in war, nor even in piracy. The charm of life was gone. There was nothing but dreariness left. He put his hoop away and his bat. There was no joy in them anymore. His aunt was concerned. She began to try all manner of remedies on him. She was one of those people who are infatuated with patent medicines and all newfangled methods of producing health or mending it. She was an inveterate experimenter in these things. When something fresh in this line came out, she was in a fever right away to try it, not on herself, for she was never ailing, but on anybody else that came handy. She was a subscriber for all the quote-unquote health periodicals and phrenological frauds and the solemn ignorance that they were inflated with was breath to her nostrils all the rot they contained about ventilation and how to go to bed and how to get up and what to eat and what to drink and how much exercise to take and what frame of mind to keep oneself in and what sort of clothing to wear was all gospel to her. And she never observed that her health journals of the current month customarily upset everything they had recommended the month before. She was as simple-hearted and honest as the day was long, and so she was an easy victim. She gathered together her quack periodicals and her quack medicines, and thus, armed with death, went about her on her pale horse, metaphorically speaking, with quote-unquote hell following after. But she never suspected that she was not an angel of healing and the balm of Gilead in disguise to the suffering neighbors. (laughs) The water treatment was new now, and Tom's low condition was a windfall to her. 
She had him out at daylight every morning, stood him up in the woodshed, and drowned him with a deluge of cold water. Then she scrubbed him down with a towel like a file, and so brought him to. Then she rolled him up in a wet sheet and put him away under blankets until she sweated his clean soul, and the yellow stains of it came through his pores, as Tom said. Yet notwithstanding all this, the boy grew more and more melancholy and pale and, deject- and dejected. She added hot baths, sits baths, shower baths, and plunges. The boy remained as dismal as a hearse. She began to assist the water with a slim oatmeal diet and blister plasters. She calculated his capacity as she would a jugs and filled him up every day with quack cure-alls. Tom had become indifferent to persecution by this time. This face filled the old lady's heart with consternation. This indifference must be broken up at any cost. Now she heard of, of painkiller for first time. She ordered a lot at once. She tasted it and was filled with gratitude. It was simply fire in a liquid form. She dropped the water treatment and everything else and pinned her faith to painkiller. She gave Tom a teaspoonful and watched with the deepest anxiety for the result. Her troubles were instantly at rest, her soul at peace again, for the indifference was broken up. The boy could not have shown a wilder, heartier interest if she had built a fire under him. Tom felt that it was time to wake up. This sort of life might be romantic enough in his blighted condition, but it was getting to have too little sentiment and too much distracting variety about it. So he thought over various plans for relief and finally hit upon that of professing to be fond of painkiller. He asked for it so often that he became a nuisance and his aunt ended by telling him to help himself and quit bothering her. If it had been Sid, she would have had no misgivings to her alloy to no misgivings to alloy her delight but since it was tom she watched the bottle clandestinely she found that the medicine did really diminish but it did not occur to her that the boy was mending the health of a crack in the sitting room floor with it (laughs) one day tom was in the act of dosing the crack when his aunt's yellow cat came along purring eyeing the teaspoon avariciously and begging for a taste tom said don't ask for it unless you want it peter but peter signified that he did want it you better make sure peter was sure now you've asked for it and i'll give it to you because there ain't anything mean about me but if you find you don't like it you mustn't blame anybody but your own self peter was agreeable So Tom pried his mouth open and poured down the painkiller. Peter sprang a couple of yards in the air and then delivered a war whoop and set off round and round the room, banging against furniture, upsetting flower pots, and making general havoc. Next, he rose on his hind feet and pranced around in a frenzy of enjoyment, with his head over his shoulder and his voice proclaiming his unappeasable happiness. Then he went tearing around the house again, spreading chaos and destruction in his path. Aunt Polly entered in time to see him throw a few double somersets, deliver a final mighty hurrah, and sail through the open window, carrying the rest of the flower pots with him.
flower. The cat. Yeah. Oh, Kenneth. The cat was carrying flower pods? Something. He's knocking them over. The old lady stood petrified with astonishment, peering over her glasses. Tom lay on the floor, expiring with laughter. Tom, what on earth ails that cat? I don't know, aunt, gasped the boy. Why, I've never seen anything like it. What did make him act so? Deed, I don't know, Aunt Polly. Cats always act so when they're having a good time. They do, do they? There was something in the tone that made Tom apprehensive. <laughs> yeah, white kitty lightning. Yes, am that is, I believe they do. You do? Yes, am The old lady was bending down, Tom watching with interest emphasized by anxiety. Too late, he delivered her drift. He divined her drift. The handle of the telltale teaspoon was visible under the bed valance. Aunt Polly took it, held it up. Tom winced and dropped his eyes. Aunt Polly raised him by the usual handle, his ear, and cracked his head soundly with her thimble. Now, sir, what did you want to treat that poor dumb beast for? I done it out of pity for him, because he hadn't any, aunt. Hadn't any, aunt? You numbskull. What has that got to do with it? Heaps, because if he'd had one, she'd have burnt him out of herself. She'd have roasted his bowels out of him without any more feeling than if he was a human. Aunt Polly felt a sudden pang of remorse. This was putting the thing in a new light. What was cruelty to a cat might be cruelty to a boy, too. She began to soften. She felt sorry. Her eyes watered a little, and she put her hand on Tom's head and said gently, I was meaning for the best, Tom. And Tom... It did do you good. Tom looked up in her face with just a perceptible twinkle peeping through his gravity. I know you was meaning for the best, Auntie, and so was I with Peter. It done him good, too. I never see him get around so since. Oh, go along with you, Tom, before you aggravate me again, and you try and see if you can't be a good boy for once, and you needn't take any more medicine. All right, we're going to take a break here. We made it to 18 minutes. A little water break. We'll be back in just a few. All right, we're back. We're going to continue with Tom Sawyer, Chapter 12. Breaking news. A local dog attack has just happened. <laughs> All right. All right. And once, and you needn't take any more medicine. Tom reached school ahead of time, and it was noticed that this strange thing had been occurring every day latterly. And now, as usual of late, he hung about the gate of the schoolyard instead of playing with his comrades. He was sick, he said, and he looked it. He tried to seem to be looking everywhere, but whither... He was really looking down the road. Presently, Jeff Thatcher hove in sight, and Tom's face lightened. He gazed a moment and then turned sorrowfully away. When Jeff arrived, Tom accosted him and led up warily to opportunities for remark about Becky. But the giddy lad never could see the bait. 
Tom watched and watched, hoping whenever a friskin' frock might uh, came in sight, and hated the owner of it as soon as he saw she was not the right one. At last, frocks ceased to appear, and he dropped hopelessly into the dumps. He entered the empty schoolhouse and sat down to suffer. Then one more frock passed in at the gate, and Tom's heart gave a great bound. The next instant, he was out and going on like an Indian, yelling, laughing, chasing boys, jumping over the fence at risk of life and limb, throwing handsprings, standing on his head, doing all the heroic things he could conceive of, and keeping a furtive eye out all the while to see if Becky Thatcher was noticing. But she seemed to be unconscious of it all. She never looked. Could it be possible she was not aware that he was there? He carried his exploits to her immediate vicinity, came war-whooping around, snatched a boy's cap, hurled it to the roof of the schoolhouse, broke through a group of boys, tumbling them in every direction, and fell sprawling himself under Becky's nose, almost upsetting her. And she turned with her nose in the air, and he heard her say, Some people think they're mighty smart, always showing off. Tom's cheeks burned. He gathered himself up and sneaked off, crushed and crestfallen. Chapter 13 Tom's mind was made up now. He was gloomy and desperate. He was a forsaken, friendless boy, he said. Nobody loved him. When they found out what they had driven him to, perhaps they would be sorry. He had tried to do right and get along, but they would not let him, since nothing would do them but to be rid of him. Let it be so. Wait, he just said he was Yeah. Like, wait, doesn't he have Huckleberry? Yeah, he's got Huckleberry, but Huckleberry is like persona non grata. What's like, that mean? What? He doesn't go to school, and all of the boys are told not to play with him and not to talk to him. Because he's like a bad influence. So, yeah. Does that mean the girls can? Because it's only the boys are being told not to. No, I mean, it's assumed that, that the girls wouldn't talk to a boy. So, that's what it was like. Okay. Let them blame him for the consequences. Why shouldn't they? What right had the friendless to complain? Yes, they had forced him to... Him to it at last he would lead a life of crime there was no choice by this time he was far down meadow lane and the bell for school to take up tinkled faintly upon his ear he sobbed now to think he should never never hear that old familiar sound anymore it was very hard but it was forced on him since he was driven out into the cold world he must submit but he forgave them. Then the sobs came thick and fast. Oh no. <laughs> Just at this point, he met his soul's sworn comrade, Joe Harper, hard-eyed and with evidently a great and dismal purpose in his heart. Plainly, here were two souls with but a single thought. Tom, wiping his eyes with his sleeve, began to blubber out something about a resolution to escape from hard usage and lack of sympathy at home by roaming abroad to get uh, roaming abroad into the great world never to return. 
and ended by hoping that Joe would not forget him. But it transpired that this was a request which Joe had just been going to make of Tom and had come to hunt him up for that purpose. His mother had whipped him for drinking some cream, which he had never tasted and knew nothing about. It was plain that she was tired of him and wished him to go. If she felt that way, there was nothing for him to do but succumb. He hoped she would be happy and never regret having driven her poor boy out into the unfeeling world to suffer and die. Yeah. I wonder if it was something else other than just creamer. That was, that is harsh. Yeah, it was pretty harsh, but he's going to make them sorry, all right. Right? He's going to make them sorry by making a horrible speech that no one's going to about. <laughs> and then he's going to change everyone's mind. Yeah. They're all going to be sorry. As the two boys walked sorrowing along, they made a new compact to stand by each other and be brothers and never separate till death relieved them of their troubles. Then they began to lay their plans. Joe was for being a hermit and living on crusts in a remote cave and dying sometime of cold and want and grief. But after listening to Tom, he conceded that there were some conspicuous advantages about a life of crime. And so he consented to be a pirate. Three miles below St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, at a point below, uh, at a point where the Mississippi River was a trifle over a mile wide, there was a long, narrow, wooded island with a shallow bar at the head of it, and this offered well as a rendezvous. It was not inhabited; it lay far over toward the further shore, abreast a dense and almost wholly unpeopled forest. So Jackson's Island was chosen. Who were to be the subjects of their piracies was a matter that did not occur to them. Then they hunted up Huckleberry Finn, and he joined them promptly, for all careers were one to him. He was indifferent. They presently separated to meet at a lonely spot on the river bank, two miles above the village at the favorite hour, which was midnight. There was a small log raft there, which they meant to capture. Each would bring hooks and lines and such provisions as he could steal in the most dark and mysterious way and become outlaws, as became outlaws, sorry. And before the afternoon was done, they had all managed to enjoy the sweet glory of spreading the fact that pretty soon the town would hear something. All who got this vague hint were cautioned to be mum and wait. About midnight, Tom arrived with a boiled ham and a few trifles and stopped in a dense undergrowth on a small bluff overlooking the meeting place. It was starlit and very still. The mighty river lay like an ocean at rest. Tom listened a moment, but no sound disturbed the quiet. Then he gave a low, distinct whistle. It was answered from under the bluff. Tom whistled twice more. These signals were answered in the same way. Then a guarded voice said, Who goes there? Tom Sawyer, the Black Avenger of the Spanish Main. Name your names. 
Huck Finn the Red-Handed, and Joe Harper the Terror of the Seas. Tom had furnished these titles from his favorite literature. Tis well, give the countersign. Two hoarse whispers delivered the same awful word simultaneously to the brooding knight. Blood! (laughs) Then Tom tumbled his ham over the bluff and let himself down after it, tearing both skin and clothes to some extent in the effort. There was an easy, comfortable path along the shore under the bluff, but it lacked the advantages of difficulty and danger. So valued by a pirate. The terror of the seas had brought a side of bacon and had about worn himself out with getting it there. Finn, the red-handed, had stolen a skillet and a quantity of half-cured leaf tobacco and had also brought a few corn cobs to make pipes with. But none of the pirates smoked or chewed but himself. The Black Avenger of the Spanish Main said it would never do to start without some fire. That was a wise thought. Matches were hardly known there in that day. They saw a fire smoldering upon a great raft a hundred yards above, and they went stealthily thither and helped themselves to a chunk. They made an imposing adventure of it, saying, Hist! every now and then, and suddenly halting with finger on lip, moving with hands on imaginary dagger hilts, and giving orders, what? Oh, yeah. Like, We're... that guy gets uh, soap poisoning. Soap poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what did we do? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ralphie. Yeah, poor Ralphie. I'm not sure soap poisoning is I'm pretty sure soap poisoning can only poison you if you ingest it, which it didn't look like he did. It probably was just a chunk of plastic. That's probably a thing. Okay. Hands on imaginary dagger hilts and giving orders in dismal whispers that if the foe stirred, to let him have it to the hilt, because dead men tell no tales. They knew well enough that the raftsmen were all down at the village, laying in stores or having a spree. Yeah, dead men tell no tales because they're dead. (laughs) But still, that was no excuse for their conducting this thing in an unpiratical way. They shoved off presently, Tom in command, Huck at the after oar, and Joe at the forward. Tom stood amidships, gloomy-browed, with folded arms and gave his orders in a low, stern whisper. Luff! And bring her to the wind. Aye, aye, sir. Steady, steady. Steady it is, sir. Let her go off a point. Point it is, sir. And the boy steadily and monotonously drove the raft toward midstream. It was no doubt doubt understood that these orders were given only for style and were not intended to mean anything in particular. All right. We're going to quit there. Because that is 30 minutes of Wiley Listens. Thank you for listening. Please, more. (laughs) More? Yes, more. (laughs)
<laughs> well, now you know how I feel when you have to stop at 30 minutes. My voice is tired. We're going to stop here. Thank you so much for listening. See you tomorrow. Thank you.